look, there's really no other way for me to say it. You're missing out. If you're not playing this, you're missing out. It's the free contests on the NBC Sports Predictor app. They've already handed out over $3 million in cash prizes, and there are tens of thousands more up for grabs this and every week. So get in on the action right now with the NBC Sports Predictor app powered by PointsBet. For the biggest names in sports talk, watch the NBC Sports Channel every weekday on Peacock. Featuring pro football talk, the Dan Patrick Show, the Ritz Eisen Show, and more. Streaming live for free on PeacockTV.com slash NBC Sports. Hello, I'm Peter King. and Welcome to the MMQB Podcast with Peter King where I take you inside the minds of the biggest influencers in the NFL. This week, All-Pro quarterback Drew Brees of the New Orleans Saints and Pro Bowl wide receiver Doug Baldwin from the Seattle Seahawks. An excellent show. I asked Brees, would he consider letting his kids play tackle football at a young age? I don't think tackle football is necessary until you get to middle school or high school. I think that there's just not enough coaches to coach proper technique with pads on with kids in elementary school. Also this week, I asked Doug Baldwin about the future of the movement begun by Colin Kaepernick where players do not stand at attention for the national anthem. You know, there's an issue that needs to be resolved and it should start on the training level. You know, and not necessarily saying that police officers are not trained well, it's just that the training needs to adapt to the times and to our society now. Those conversations and my thoughts on the state of the NFL. Now my conversation with the 11-year quarterback of the New Orleans Saints, Drew Brees. Back on the Peter King podcast here with Drew Brees. Drew, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, but the reason why I'm prompted to use this today is because I wonder what would have happened to this city if you never came here. And if in February of 2006, coming off shoulder surgery, the Miami Dolphins had signed you, which, I mean, that's what I thought was going to happen. You were going to go play for Nick Saban. Could have changed the course of history, not just you, but imagine if Nick Saban stays in Miami and doesn't go after two years to Alabama? What happens to college football? What happens here in New Orleans? And I wonder if any time you ever think about what could have happened had you traveled differently and gone to Miami instead of come here. (laughs) Well, there was definitely some divine intervention there um, that led me here to New Orleans. It was, you know, looking back just on that process, I mean, listen, I, I never thought I'd leave San Diego. Um, you know, when I was drafted by the Chargers in 2001, I think my mindset was that this is where I was going to be, this is where I was going to stay, I was going to be the quarterback of this team, lead this franchise for a long time. I mean, I think every young quarterback has those aspirations whenever they're drafted somewhere, is that, you know, this is the spot. And, you know, unfortunately in that fifth year I had the shoulder injury and, you know, they had drafted Phillip and, you know, it was just one of those where I knew they were looking for any reason, you know, to be able to put put the young guy in there who they had a lot invested in, obviously, and knew he was going to be a great player, as he is. But, um, you know, the choices were Miami and New Orleans. And I think just on the surface, you would have said, oh, it's Miami by a long shot, right? Like you said, Nick Saban, who arguably there was a lot of excitement around him as the head coach there in Miami. He had kind of turned the team around that, that year in 05, and so there are high expectations for 06. I had played against him in college, you know, so I knew the type of coach he was, the type of defensive mind he was. There's a lot of great coaches on that staff too, Jason Garrett, Mike Malarkey, Hudson Houck, a few other guys that I knew and knew very well. It was going to be the same system. I mean, all these things seemed like they were lining up to be Miami, and yet um, there was just this feeling that, um, you know, we belonged in New Orleans, and it it was well beyond just football. You know, it was about the rebirth of the city and and being a part of that, and um, just how many people in their life get that opportunity. just really felt like it was a calling. If you go back to that time, do you believe that you made that decision as much for football reasons, as personal reasons, or what was the biggest reason now with some, with a decade of perspective, why you made the decision? Well, I, listen, I I loved Sean Payton, you know, and 
Here was a guy who was, you know, unproven as a head coach. I mean, it was his first head coaching opportunity, but, um, you know, was a Bill Parcells disciple. So I think I, coming from Marty Schottenheimer, I knew what to expect there. Yeah. Uh, you know, hard-nosed football coach, hard but fair, but just this great offensive mind. And what struck me immediately when I got here to New Orleans, just in speaking with him during kind of the recruiting trip, so to speak, was that he said, listen, I'm, here's my offense, but here's all the things. I mean, he pulled up all the San Diego tape. Here's all the things that I see you doing very, very well, things that you're confident with, things that you love. This is going to be our offense, the things that you do well. We're going to you know, basically build this thing around you. And I mean, that took me back because typically, especially a first-year head coach, I think you step in and you feel like, it's got to be your way, and we're making changes, and follow me, and and yet I felt like we were in it together from the very beginning, and so I felt like that was very unique. So I love Sean, and I loved his approach. So yes, football, but man, there was, <laughs> I think just the personal side of it, the looking around and just feeling like this really was a community, this was a tight-knit community, and we could be a part of this community and really make a difference in this community, that was a huge factor. You're one of the few athletes who, when given an opportunity, and I remember when Sports Illustrated named you Sportsman of the Year, I remember when we were talking about it around the office, you know, one of my points was that this is a guy who, long after the sort of crisis of Katrina ended, this is a guy who still was doing things years later, you know, three, four years later so do you believe that that part of being here has been maybe not as rewarding as the football part winning a super bowl and is playing as well as you have but what about the long-term reclamation project that this city has been well i think it's all worked together you know honestly but um but certainly what we've been able to give and what we've been able to be a part of in regards to the rebirth of this city. And, and not just um, tangible things like, you know, structure, and but I think lifting the spirit and creating that bond. I mean, I mean, I think that's something that will truly live forever and something that I think all of us carry with us in everything that we do now. I mean, there's just, there's a vibe to this city that it's hard to explain unless you've spent some time here and I think a lot of people have recognized that when they come here, even if they're not a resident and they're just coming for a short period of time. I think they just they feel something very unique. There is a spirit to this city that, that is unlike any other. And I think a lot of that was fostered through those first few years of recovery post-Katrina and, and all the people that were a part of that. Do you still find yourself doing things to try to help parts of this community that were unalterably damaged by Katrina? Yeah, I, we're always looking for ways to give back to this community and to help this community. I think it, uh, it's been an evolution. You know, I mean, there's things that we were very focused on, you know, in the early stages. Um, in, in the early stages for us, it was how do we make families feel comfortable coming back to New Orleans that they have schools for their kids to go to and parks and playgrounds and athletic fields and you know, so their kids can have a normal childhood, you know, and, and have all the opportunities to be successful in life that, you know, that you hope and dream for your kids. And that part's never changed. I mean, we continue to try to find ways to, to do that for people and for this community. But I think we've seen New Orleans evolve into like this, um, it's like this small business mecca too. And it's this um, entrepreneurial hotbed. I mean, you, we've got all this young entrepreneurial talent coming to New Orleans to try to start businesses. It's really a land of opportunity. It kind of be, it was created a after Katrina. And so we're doing a lot with, with entrepreneurship programs to help, you know, try to recruit this talent to the city to help create businesses, which helps create jobs, which helps drive the economy beyond just tourism. And, helps the community grow into a place where, hey, people want to live here, people want to raise their kids here. So, Drew, let's talk about football a little bit. You're 37 years old. A couple of years ago, you said, I want to play till I'm 45. And uh, I don't know who's going to play longer, you or Brady, but I have a feeling that one day they're going to put me in the ground and the last thing I'll look up at the TV and I'll see you're 58 years old and you and Brady will be dueling in a Super Bowl. But so... What drives you still to play this game 
and to play it at the high level you're playing? Well, if I'm playing it, then I'm going to try to, and I'm going to be the best that I can be at it. Um, I'm not just, I'm never going to be in a position where I'm just going through the motions. I'm here to win a championship. You know, that's my job. And I think um, for me, yes, we've, we, we won one, and that was in my ninth year in this league. And here I am in my 16th season. To win another one would be so meaningful because I feel like it would be literally with two totally different teams. You know, I mean, there's very few guys left from that original team. And as I look at a guy like Peyton Manning, you know, he won one in his ninth year and then his 18th year, <laughs> right? And literally two different teams, one's with the Colts, one with the Broncos. But, you know, you'd say two different stages in his career as well. Mm-hmm. Brady won one in year two, four, and five. You know, there was that, you could say that dynasty in, in New England. And then, listen, they've had a ton of success since then, but he didn't see another one until year 15, you know, 10 years later. It's interesting how... It's interesting you know those years, oh, I do know those, those. those numbers. I you study those. those. Yes. So it would be extremely meaningful to win another championship, and that's what I'm here to do. I also love playing this game. I love being around my teammates. For a long time here, you know, just talking about the skill position guys, you know, it was Marcus Colston, it was Devery Henderson, Robert Meacham, Lance Moore. I mean, we had that run together six, seven years where it's hard to maintain that type of consistency with that many guys for that period of time. And now I see this new crop that's here, and I feel like we can do the same thing. Brandon Cooks, Willie Sneed, Brandon Coleman, Michael Thomas. And so that gets me excited, really excited to come to work every day to work with these guys. You know, my own children, my kids, um, I got three boys, age seven, almost six, and four. And, man, you talk about, like, diehard football right now. <laughs> um, I get home yesterday after a long day, and they just want me to throw to them. While, and one catches it while the other hits him, and does he get in the end zone or not, you know? And it's – so they are so into it right now. And for them to be a part of this, like, the memories that we're creating for them is, you know, you, you want that to last forever. Your son, Balin, now is seven. He's playing flag football, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah? yeah. How does he like it? He loves it. He loves it. He's playing receiver. And the cool thing is, is uh, one of my best friends and I were the coaches for the team, his flag football team, this in the spring. And um, in order to make it fun, we named all the position players after Marvel superheroes. <laughs> so going from left to right, it was Iron Man was the receiver. Uh, Hawkeye was the center. Captain America was the quarterback. Hulk was the running back. Flashman was the slot. And then Thor was the flanker on the right side. So my son playing Iron Man, he was the X. You know? uh, he was Brandon Cooks. So, but was, I, I hear I hear Balin is a bit of an Odell Beckham fan. He is. He yeah. is. He. Uh, well, so all three of our boys here in New Orleans go to Newman, which yeah. is where the Mannings went. It's also where Odell Beckham Jr. went. And so it was uh, in 2015 before we played the Giants that uh, you know Giants were coming to New Orleans to play. And Newman made a big deal about, you know, two Newman alums coming back home, uh, you know, Eli Manning and Odell Beckham Jr. And so for some reason at that moment, it clicked with my son. This was right before before Halloween. So he's like, I want an Odell Beckham jersey. I want to be Odell Beckham for Halloween. I'm like, whoa, 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 listen, we play these guys on Sunday, all right? I'm not going to buy my oldest son running around in the opposing team's jersey. You know, I said, let's just, let's just wait till after this weekend, and then you can be a fan of whoever you want. <laughs> Does he still have the Odell jersey? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what's funny is typically what they'll do is when, when we have games in the backyard, two of them will dress up in Saints jerseys. And then they'll typically put the youngest, Callan, who's four, into the opposing team's jersey so yeah. that they can just knock the crap out of him. <laughs> <laughs> so we, they'll put him in a, we've got a Giants jersey, a Lions jersey, and, and maybe you one You know, other. there seems to be, speaking of that, there seems to be a movement toward flag football with the really young kids in the United States now. We just did a story at the MMQB, this town in South Carolina now, if you are below eighth grade, mm-hmm. youth football is flag football there. So how do you feel about that? Because I think you didn't play tackle football until you were in high school. Is that right? Yes, that's right. I, I played flag football sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. And then I didn't play tackle football until ninth grade. What do you think about the whole education process? I, I think it's a phenomenal idea to play flag football up until middle school and potentially high school. I mean, I think at some point it's the decision for the parents 
you know, in the child as to whether you play tackle. But I, I just I don't think tackle football is necessary until you get to middle school or high school. I think that the game is so much more fun and you learn so much more about just the fundamentals of, you know, throwing, catching, running, you know, uh, concepts, uh, defense and that kind of thing through flag football, through flag football. I think that there's just not enough coaches to coach proper technique with pads on with, with kids in elementary school. You know, that's just the truth. And I think kids have more fun playing flag football because in flag football, everybody has a chance to, you know, run the ball, catch the ball. Throw. That's not the case in tackle football. You're either a lineman or yeah. you're a skill guy. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Whereas in flag football, it's, it's kind of a free-for-all. Everybody has that opportunity. And I just think it's a great way to teach the game in a very safe way that certainly parents feel comfortable about. And it, it still engages the kids and it still gets them excited about it to where at some point they transition to pads. Dayon Buchanan of the Arizona Cardinals told me in training camp this year that his first two years playing, he played flag football. And the reason why he feels that all kids, the introduction to football should be flag football is because he said, you got to realize when you're in fifth, sixth, seventh grade, the idea of learning football and then learning the physical part of it, knowing that you might get knocked down and everything mm -hmm. to a kid that's a really big deal mm -hmm. and he said you got to get kids to love football love the sport itself right. and some kids they might get hit really hard their first year playing football and say that's not for me i'm right. going to play soccer or whatever right. or wh right. whatever it is right I, I just i think that's a really enlightened idea i think you will bring a lot more people to the sport by starting them off with flag football to that point because you, you get them to fall in love with the sport and then you gradually evolve to the physical nature of the game. Speaking of the physical nature of the game, so you are about six feet tall, not a huge statuesque quarterback. It's amazing when you think about it that you've lasted as long as you have. You've always been a player's guy. You've been very involved in players' issues. So how much are you concerned about your physical well-being at 50, 55, 60, when you have four children who are going to be four young adults at that time? Well, I, I imagine my body and my joints are going to hurt a little bit more than they otherwise would have if I had not played football. But, um, you know, I, I feel like I try to be as aware and uh, – stay on top of my my body and my health as much as I possibly can. Now, listen, this is a physical sport. It's a violent sport at times. I play the quarterback position where, yeah, I'm getting hit, but I'm not I'm not thumping like the guys, you know, on, on the front line, you know, the O-line, D-line, linebacker, you know, defensive players and, and others. But still, there is there is a physical toll that it does take on you. I try to do all the right things to take care of my body throughout the season and throughout the offseason because I want to be able to play this game for as long as I can, and I want to be – in great physical health when I leave this game, you know, most importantly too. I think that we know so much more now than we did even three years ago, five years ago, in regards to specifically, you know, head and neck injuries. I think that the protocols are in place now to take care of guys when those issues do happen, because listen, they will happen. You know, it's football and those collisions are, are hard. And while we're trying to, I think, evolve in regards to the technique of tackling and different things. It's still going to happen. But whereas in the olden days, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, you get dinged and it's, hey, it's a toughness thing to stay in and, you know, not, you know, be away from your team and suck it up and, you know, just go. We now know how much damage that can cause, just that re the repeated effects of, you know, banging your head after you've had an instance. So I think now, like, for example, you know, Luke Keekley last year, arguably one of the best defense players in this league, has a concussion in week one, hold him out for three weeks. Would that have happened 20 years ago? No. 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 He probably would have gone in as quickly as he could, right? But now we know that, listen, this is this, is this guy's long-term health. And there's lots of instances like that where let's make sure he's healthy. Let me ask you what Ben Roethlisberger did last year. The Steelers are in Seattle. They're down 38 to 30. There's about two to three minutes left in the game. And Roethlisberger 
in the middle of this big pennant race game, mm-hmm. goes to his trainer and says, I don't feel right. You know, I don't feel right. And he left the game. Now, whether they would have won the game or not, but that, that to me was, I don't know if you'd call it a defining moment, but I thought it was a pretty incredible moment that a guy without anybody going to him and saying, hey, we're examining you. He self-reported. Now, mm-hmm. so if that's you, could you have done that? And would you have done that? I think it's nearly impossible to rely on the player themselves to self-report. You know, I, I think m- maybe there's times where that will happen, but I, I would say in large part that's why you've got – the trainers and the referees and the the independent neurological consultant now that's on the sideline to identify those players because i i think it's it's hard to expect guys to do that i mean but what about you for him (laughs) honestly i I don't think i would i would not self-report yeah um but looking back now if somebody pulled you out of the game how would you feel about that? You'd probably be angry about it, wouldn't you? Well, that's, that happened to me. Back in 2004, when I was in San Diego, I got a concussion playing against the Jets. I was out for a moment of time on the field and got up, and I had chipped teeth in my mouth and spit it out. It felt like a gravel in my mouth. I got hit in the chin. and I stayed in for another quarter, but, man, I knew things were not right. And my, eventually my offensive coordinator, Cam Cameron, looked in my eyes and said, you don't look like you're all there. He said, I know, you got, I know you took a shot out there. He said, I'm, I'm sitting you down. And, and I fought him on it for a while. And he said, no, this is for your long-term health. I'm sitting you down. Wow. And so, God, that's 12 years ago that happened. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, again, I, I wasn't going to pull myself out. I wasn't going to pull myself out. It, it was a close game, trying to go win. I wasn't going to pull myself out. That really is – I mean, everybody talks about the important issues facing the NFL and, and all that. But to me, Roger Goodell has one job – over the next however long he's going to be commissioner and who knows how long that's going to be. But he's got one job, and that is making, as lofty as this sounds, it's making the parents of America trust that everything is being done, everything, to make sure that the long-term health of the players who play in the NFL is paramount in his interest. And I wonder, do you think the NFL now is doing enough about player health and safety i think that it's a joint effort between the pa the nfl players association and the nfl um i don't think that we as players can just rely on the nfl to do those things i think we it has to be um a joint effort and i think it really has to be driven by the players association just as it was during this last round of negotiations our number one priority going into those negotiations in 2011 was to improve player health and safety and I think that we made huge strides in doing that. And I think that we've made it known that that is and will always be our number one priority. This is the MMQB Podcast. This is Adrian Wojnarowski of The Vertical. For candid conversations with the biggest names around the NBA, be sure to check out our podcast network, which includes The Vertical Podcast with Woj, The Vertical Podcast with J.J. Redick, and The Vertical Podcast with Chris Mannix, all at thevertical.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Football is back, and SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to find tickets for the games you want to see up close and in person this season. You know, there's nothing like being in the stadium for the biggest plays of the year, and with SeatGeek, it's never been easier to get the seats you want for great value. SeatGeek has the best deals on every ticket in the house, wherever you want to sit whether it's the 50, the club seats, or the upper deck. Now pay attention to this next part. It's really important. My listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. That's $20 right in your pocket. And to get it, all you have to do is this. Download the free SeatGeek app and go to the Settings tab. Click Add a Promo Code. Then enter promo code MMQB. SeatGeek will then send you the $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. It doesn't get any easier than that. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code MMQB today. Now, let's get back to our guest. Here we are with Drew Brees in New Orleans. So, I want to ask you a couple of issues in the NFL right now. 
Do you think the players will ever, under any circumstances, accept an 18-game regular season? No, I don't. I don't. The the argument that's tried to have been presented to us is, well, you know, we'll just eliminate two preseason games and just tack on two regular season games, and it's pretty much the same thing. It still adds up to 20. But no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> those are different games. Yeah, you know, um, the preseason I think is necessary in a lot of ways for evaluation of young players. It's where a lot of these young guys get their opportunities to develop, to be a part of the team long term. And so, I think that um, at the end of the day, adding two games is adding a lot of stress on your body, especially when you when you really just think about. You know, the latter part of the season, if you look at statistics, that's when there's the highest instances of injuries and that kind of thing. Because just, you know, your body hits a fatigue. And so now you're talking about adding two more of those types of games when it's just going to increase the chance of injury exponentially. So I don't think that will ever happen. I think it's, it's fine just the way it is. If Agreed. anything, there might be a chance to add maybe another playoff team in each conference. So, you know. I think that, that that will add another game into the, into, the, into the playoff equation, which I don't think anybody would complain about, you know, fans or, or teams. But um, obviously that's to be negotiated. Is Roger Goodell the best man right now to be leading the National Football League? <laughs> Tough questions, right? Listen, I, I, think, I think Roger Goodell has done a very good job in regards to revenue generation, ideas to... Uh, expand the popularity of the game of football. I obviously don't agree with the way that some of these NFL investigations have been handled um, in regards to, you know, Bounty Gate with us back in 2012, in regards to the Ray Rice situation, in regards to uh, Tom Brady. Can I just interrupt you and ask sure. you this? I, in my opinion, Roger Goodell used a sledgehammer to kill an ant with Tom Brady. I think it's – I'm still incredulous that a guy that they never proved beyond the shadow of a doubt that he was in on any sort of deflation scheme. They never even proved categorically that the balls were deflated. And to give a guy a four-game suspension for that I thought was really heavy. But some quarterbacks feel like, hey, you know, that quarterback is going to know – about the deflation of the ball. He's going to be able to feel it. It's going to be a really big deal. How did you feel about that, both the penalty and what exactly happened there? Yeah, I don't know if, if, if it happened or if it didn't happen with the Patriots and, and the deflate gate thing. But what I can say is that I certainly don't trust any NFL-led investigation at this point based upon the, la the three that I just mentioned. There is zero transparency when it comes to any of those investigations. There's been proven to be a lot of faulty things going on with all of those investigations, a lot of criticism. And at the end of the day, I feel like there's an agenda at play with the league office when it comes to some of these issues and that they are going to devise the end result of the investigation to fit their agenda. Um, I feel like with Bounty Gate in our situation back in 2012, that the NFL was under a lot of heat for player health and safety. And so they had to make an example out of somebody. And this in the New Orleans Saints just happened to be the most convenient one. And the punishment that was levied on Sean Payton and Joe Vitt and our, you know, so many people within our, our, uh, our management and then our team, I thought was completely ridiculous based upon the evidence that they supposedly had. That at the end of the day, all the players who were, you know, ended up being suspended were all vindicated of, of what they were accused of. By Paul Tagliabue. By yeah. Paul Tagliabue. Yeah. So just the irony in that and... The fact that I, mean, I think that just proved right there that um, they had an agenda that they were driving. They were you know, skewing all the evidence to fit that. And at the end of the day, it blew up in their face. Um, and it continues to happen, which is the reason why we need neutral arbitration. And we need somebody to be able to step in that makes it to where, you know, Commissioner Goodell and the NFL is not judge, jury, executioner when it comes to NFL discipline and certainly running investigations. Then again, though, you had that opportunity in 2011 and... But again, I remember D. Smith telling me, he said, well, basically, he said, we, we knew that it, that was an absolute non-starter with the league at that time. But I don't think it's going to be a non-starter in the next negotiations or even maybe before then. Yeah, uh, you're exactly right. And I said it earlier um, that player health and safety was our number one priority back in 2011. You know, And so 
uh, in any negotiation. And that, you accomplished a lot with that. We did. I mean, with the offseason. In any negotiation, yeah. there's, there's give and take. Yeah. And so that was something that was important to them, player health and safety, and there were some other things that were important to us. So at the end of the day, we as players, we, want, we wanted a fair deal. And we felt like we got a fair deal. Unfortunately, the commissioner discipline aspect of it has proven to be a real problem. Last question here with Drew Brees in New Orleans. So, Drew, you know a lot about pro football history. And as we record this, you're about 10,000 yards away from the all-time passing yardage record. You're 103 touchdown passes away from the all-time touchdown record. How meaningful are those numbers to you in a game that is an ultimate team game? You've always been the kind of guy you want to leave footprints in the sand. So how important is it for you to hold those records? It's more important for me to win another championship, but I'd be lying if I said that those those weren't important as well. But it's not my number one priority. Drew Brees, thanks so much for joining me on the Peter King Podcast. You've been enlightening and a lot of fun. Thanks, Peter. It's the MMQB Podcast. Hey, football season's here. It's time to get in the action and play like the pros at mybookie.net. It's the most exciting experience for sports fans. MyBookie features real Vegas odds and incredible player props on every football game. Game already kick off? Well, it's never too late to play. MyBookie has live games with odds updated in real time. And best off, it's optimized for smartphone users for nonstop action on the go. So go online and type MyBookie in your browser and sign up today. Use the promo code KING, that's K-I-N-G, to be entered into their million-dollar prize pool. Or, if you prefer, just make a phone call. Call 844-722-2387. It's a free phone call. 844-722-2387. Join thousands of online players already playing. Only the biggest, only the best, only at MyBookie. Sign up today. Some excellent points from Drew Brees, and even more now from Doug Baldwin. Back on the MMQB podcast with Peter King, I'm here with Doug Baldwin, wide receiver with the Seattle Seahawks. And before this season, I thought it was really interesting that the Seattle Seahawks stepped up and paid you and gave you a contract sort of befitting what you have done. And I think a lot of people thought two, three, four years ago that maybe you were more of a marginal player, a third or fourth receiver. But the one thing about you that I think is interesting is how you have always sort of used kind of the negativity as fuel. Has that happened your whole life that you've done that or just when you got to this level? No, it's, it's occurred my, my entire life. High school, I had similar issues. Little League football, I had similar issues. Um, college, obviously, is well-documented. And then um, the struggles that I've had in the, in the NFL are well-documented as well. So, yeah, it's always been there. But the reason why I think uh, I've kind of attached myself to it is because it's always been there, and it always will be there. There will always be somebody who says something negative about you or something negative about your game. And so you'll always have that ammunition or that fuel you know, readily available at any given moment. Why are you able to use it so effectively, whereas maybe some other players who might feel the same way, it doesn't work the same for them? How exactly do you use it? In two ways. First and foremost, just looking at the criticism, the negativity, to be completely honest, it doesn't bother me that much. You know, I do analyze it, look at my game and say, OK, well, are there things that I can improve? Uh, and that's one of the things that it forces me to do, to self uh, to self analyze, to look myself in the mirror. But then at the same time, it fuels my passion to prove myself right. So if somebody is uh, critiquing my game, that's you know absolutely wrong. Um, then I look at what I know is right, and then I want to go out there and prove myself right again. So that's the way that I internalize it. And, and in that fashion, it doesn't become toxic to me as a vessel. It becomes a productive, positive synergy or energy for me to go out there and do what I need to do. Where did you learn that the mental side of the game can help the physical side of the game? 
my coach in uh, at Stanford, Shannon Turley, my strength coach. He won't he won't take the credit, but he's the guy who who's put me on the on the path of the mental side of the game. Uh, he gave me a book when I was oh, he lent me a book uh, when I was at Stanford called Mind Gym. Um, and mind that, Gym. Mind Gym. Uh, mind, G-Y-M? G-Y-M, yeah. And, and in that book specifically, it talks about the mental side of the game. And one of the quotes in there from Yogi Berra was, 90% of the game is half mental. You know, and, and obviously the math is misunderstood <laughs> in that. <laughs> but the fact of the matter was is that, you know, the mental side of the game is, is vastly more important than the physical. Because at this level in the NFL, everybody's an athletic freak, you know, and, and there's not much that differentiates each other from or ourselves from the athletic side or standpoint, but the mental game of it is what can give you and ultimately give you a, an edge over your competition. And so I've lent on that as much as I possibly could to make sure that I had every possible advantage in my toolbox. What do you do during the course of the week? Are you somebody who will Google things about yourself to see what people are saying. I remember, you know, John Randall of the Minnesota Vikings used to take the media guy to the team he was about to play. And he used to read up and, and like the personal things about, say, Brett Favre or the lineman on the Packers. And he used to come into the game and just bark about it the whole game. <laughs> so, I mean, what do you do to learn about your opposition or to learn about what people out there are saying about you? Well, first and foremost, opposition is easy because we have film. That's easy to study. Yeah, a lot of the, the defensive coordinators are well documented about their types of tendencies, their schemes. So it's very easy to get a feel for the type of defense we're going against. As far as the negativity, I don't have to look it up because it's readily available to me at all times. You know, social media, good and bad, you know, provides that. Yeah, but everybody on social media <laughs> says everybody is a bag of crap. Of, of course. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I think as, as athletes... Uh, thrust into the spotlight, especially on such an important event in our in our society, Sundays, you know, you, you get all of it. So it's very easy for me just to turn on my social media and see all the comments that are being thrown towards my uh, profile. Okay, I got to ask you this one football question about your game against San Francisco. You talk about athletic freaks. You made one of the most ridiculous catches I've ever seen in football. I've covered football for 32 years. You really made one of the great catches, and yet not many people really made a big deal of it. And I watched that this week, and I just said, that is phenomenal. And for those who didn't see it, it was like a crossing route, right? And you dove for a pass that was probably about 18 inches, what appeared to be outside of your grasp. You dove... You brought the ball in with your left hand mm -hmm. to your body just as you hit the ground. I want you to describe how you're able to make a catch like that and the work that goes into making a catch like that. Well, the first part of it is the mental side of it. You know, we talk about that. And uh, it's basically having um, an absence of thought in those moments. You know, for me, I... I I can't be thinking about anything else. I can't be thinking about the past or the future, the previous play, the next play. I have to be so... Um, or a safety who might be bearing down on you, getting ready to hit you hard. Or that. You know, it's it's got to be about that specific moment. And in that moment, yeah, the ball was thrown a little bit outside of my frame, but those are the moments where you got to make the best of your opportunities. And we continuously say this all the time. We only get so many opportunities in the passing game. And so when the ball is thrown our way, you got to do everything in your power to get it. So, you know, the mental want to, to go out there and, and make those plays is there for all of us. And so we practice that at times, you know, doing the one handed catches, but um, it's, it's very rewarding when you get to show that in the game, all the hard work that you did during the week. Tell me when you guys watch that, in the film room, in your offensive meeting room, or in the receivers' room, in the last few days, what was the reaction? A positive one, obviously. You know, a lot of positive comments. But again, this this is stuff that we do, uh, that we practice. So, um, you know, a lot of congratulations and and nice comments. But the fact of the matter is, is that th that's our job. So we don't look at it in our room as something uh, as spectacular as others might. You know, it's just, okay, you made a good play, and we expect you to make that good play over and over again. How many catches in your life do you think have you made that are better than that one? Any? No, I, th I think that might <laughs> top the list.
talking with Doug Baldwin, wide receiver, the Seattle Seahawks. So, Doug, you have um, you've been sort of thrust into the spotlight a bit in the last few days, and really this season by aligning yourself with Colin Kaepernick and with being very empathetic toward his cause. Um, You're on 60 Minutes Sports with John Wertheim talking about that at length. I find something really interesting about that. Your dad is a cop. Mm -hmm. And so what's been the discussion with your father about how this situation, if it can be improved, can be improved in the United States? Well, the, the conversation in general has just been about his experience as a police officer, obviously, and what he went through in, in, in training when he was in the academy, uh, things that he learned outside of the academy. Um, Where is he a police officer? Well, he, 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 he was retired, okay. uh, but he was, uh, for 35 years, he was with, uh, with the Pensacola Police Department back in Florida. Uh, so, you know, very well versed on on how issues. was his experience was it mostly positive or mostly positive he loved what he did because uh, he felt like he was you know giving back to the community doing something for his community so uh, he was an excellent officer during his time but yeah his his experience was mostly a positive one but our conversations uh, tend to, to talk more about his training and what he thought was positive about his training and then also what he thought uh, was lacking in his training so during his time as a police officer, he also was with Homeland Security, and so he got to travel the country and, and the world a lot, and he got to see different perspectives and different um, training methods. And the one thing that he told me is that you know the training is not is not consistent across the country, um, and there's a lot of places that lack the training that he thinks is necessary to eliminate the issues that we've been seeing on our video video feeds, and so. Yeah, you know, that's where I started. Is my, my dad, thirty-five years on the on the force, knows better than I would, and so um, really, our conversation is just me, me asking him questions. How does he feel? I'm curious about what some athletes are doing now. However, they're demonstrating either by kneeling, or uh, by a fist, or by interlocking arms. How does he feel about that? Well, he's he's happy that people are speaking up about this situation, and he totally agrees that you know there's an issue that needs to be resolved, and he agrees with me that he thinks that it should start on the training level, you know, and not necessarily saying that police officers are not trained well. It's just that the training needs to adapt to to the times and to our society now, and so in that sense, and and what he has given me. He's saying that it's not necessarily condemning the police officers. It's really mm-hmm. saying that the training needs to adapt so that um, they can have better tools, better resources in order to protect themselves better and also protect the communities that they serve. Uh, and so that's what his mindset was when I spoke to him. And so he was um, very much in agreement with the message, not necessarily the method. You know, he we didn't really talk about the different methods. It was more so the message that was behind the protests. I wonder where do you think this is going in professional sports? I know that there's been a lot of discussion about what the future of this movement might be. Do you have much of a gut feeling what the near and long-term future is with athletes and trying to do something about the violence? Yeah, I don't think it's going to go away. I think that in football we, t- we took a major step. You know, and I think it's very hard for us as individuals in the NFL to make these types of stances because you know it, it affects a large number of people you know 53 on active roster 10 on practice squad so and then also the entire organization itself which you know employs a lot of people um, it's very difficult to make those those strong statements but um, as as athletes I don't think it's going to go anywhere especially with the NBA starting up who you know they've always been ahead of the curve in terms of activism and what they've done on the on the basketball court so I don't think it's going to change you know I think that now more so than anything uh, a lot of the athletes are looking towards resolutions and that's not going to go away because we're going to continue to see issues in our society that that need to be changed I want to ask you about something Brandon Marshall told me about on this podcast two weeks ago Uh, he said what we really need more than anything else I think now is some of the white athletes to sort of back this cause. Chris Long of the New England Patriots has done it. But really, it's been mostly African-American athletes who have done this and not white athletes. What do you think, and do you think that there will come a time that more white players will speak out about it? 
I think they will is, is the conversation continues in the locker room and more players of different races become empathetic to the plight of, of African-Americans in this country. They realize that, you know, there's things that need to be changed. I think it's difficult for other ethnicities to understand it because, you know, it's hard for them to put themselves in the shoes of, of other ethnicities and and to feel the experiences that they didn't experience. And so with that, you know, I think it is important that other ethnicities, especially the, the white Americans um, in sports, do take part in it and recognize that, you know, it's it's not just a, a one-sided thing. In order for us to correct these issues, to find solutions, we have to do it together. Um, and so it's very, it's vitally important that other races get involved. But again, I think as the conversation continues, it's going to be easier for them because they're going to hear the experiences. They're going to um, see the emotions on, on individuals' faces and be able to be empathetic to those situations. Finishing up with Doug Baldwin of the Seattle Seahawks, I got to tell this personal story of this thing between us <laughs> that I think is so, I just think it's very interesting because sometimes in my business, guys will yell at you or get unhappy with you for something you've done, but you approach me before the Super Bowl against the New England Patriots and you were really ticked off and you thought I had written something and you were very angry and then you just walked away and I just said, man, I better Google myself and Doug Baldwin to see what if anything I had written and I couldn't find anything. And so this year at training camp, it's a year and a half later, at training camp, you see me, I come up to you, I was going to say something to you, and you just said, man, I'm, I'm really sorry, I, you know, for what I did. And there aren't many guys who do that, whether they realize that what they did was wrong. There aren't many guys who will do that. And so I think you deserve credit for basically just walking up to somebody who you may have wronged and try to make it right. And I just wanted to tell you I appreciate that. I appreciate you saying that. You know, it did bother me for that year and a half. <laughs> it did bother me because, you know. You I, know what it was? I, I think it was this. There were so many people dogging you guys. There were so many people who were saying, oh, man, they got to win in spite of their receivers. You know, that I, when I, what I thought that day is I'm just representative of the larger mass media, you know? No, it, w it was a, a specific article. It came from MMQB. And I, you know, in my haste and frustration, I didn't fully look at uh, who the author was. And I just saw your name somewhere around it and assumed it was you. And so... You know, when I saw you on the field, you, you became the next target. But uh, again, you know, I deeply regret that because, uh, you know, I was wrong. Oh, it's not anything you need to deeply regret. And I appreciate you saying something. My last question for you is it's so hard to stay on top in this game as a player and as a team. And yet you guys and you guys have the mantle. You guys have everybody aiming at you every year. It's a huge game when you come to town. So do you feel that as a player? Do you guys feel that as a team? And how hard is it in this game to stay on top? Yes, we do feel it. You know, we think that uh, there's been a target on our backs for a while. The Seattle Seahawks, you know, they, we've been a target for a while. And how do we stay on top or how do we stay in the moment? It's, it's just that. It's staying in the moment, I should say. Uh, we, we preach it in our meetings. We practice it all the time. It's, it's not about the next opponent. It's, not about, it's really not even about our opponent. It's about us and staying in the moment and, and finding the best in ourselves. And that's the way that we do it. You know, if we can focus on us, if we can focus on the task at hand rather than the outcome, then we give ourselves the best opportunity to go out there and perform at a high level. And so we do that in practice. We do that in the meeting rooms. And eventually it bleeds into the game and it gives us, like I said, the best opportunity to win. You know, that's that's our, our methodology. That's our, our mindset when we go into these games is um, if we can find our best, then that's really all that we need to do. And really, that's all we can control. So that's the way we look at it. Doug Baldwin, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Of course. Thanks for having me. It's the MMQB Podcast. Two very enlightening guests this week, Drew Brees and Doug Baldwin. It's guests like that that make this podcast so much fun for me to do, and I hope you're enjoying it as well. Now, a few thoughts about the NFL at the quarter pole. 
So no one, I think, would have been surprised if you were to be told that the New England Patriots had done okay in Tom Brady's absence. But I think those around the league are saying, hey, boy, we're glad they lost one before they got Brady back. I mean, they could go for another undefeated season. I had a different reaction. And my reaction was that I think the New England Patriots performed incredibly well, all things considered, without Tom Brady. And now that Brady comes back for week five at Cleveland, I think that the New England Patriots are going to show the rest of the league that Brady, even at age 39, is going to be able to perform well enough for New England to threaten Denver for home field advantage in the AFC. Now, the one thing that's going to happen with Brady, and I talked to somebody who's close to him last week, he said, look, Tom is not going to bring into his locker room all this anger at the NFL and and all this stuff he wants to stick to Roger Goodell or anything like that. He's going to come in and just concentrate on football. If I've learned one thing about Tom Brady in the 15 years that I've known him, it is this. It is about the team. And I know that's a cliche. It really is. Because everybody looks out for himself. We all know that. But with Tom Brady, he is the perfect captain of the ship for Bill Belichick. He realizes fully when he can't play at the level that he's playing at right now, Bill Belichick is going to move on from him. He knows that, and he's fairly comfortable with that. But I don't think he's anywhere near that level right now. I think Brady comes back, plays exceedingly well, and I think it comes down to week 17 in this NFL season for home field in the AFC between New England and Denver. I think it's going to be a great, great race. Fasten your seatbelt. That is not, however, the team that I think is going to represent the AFC in the Super Bowl. I think it's going to be one of the wild cards, Pittsburgh. I think Cincinnati is going to win that division, and Pittsburgh is going to come on because I think their offense by the end of the year is going to be unstoppable. I think the AFC race is going to be fantastic, and I think that the best three teams in football by the end of the season just might reside in the American Football Conference. Thanks to my guests, Drew Brees and Doug Baldwin. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes in the MMQB series, such as my conversations with John Elway, Bruce Arians, and Brandon Marshall. You can find these on the MMQB.com or iTunes, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Listen to other podcasts in our series as well, with Albert Breer, Gary Grambling, and Andy Benoit. Thanks to the folks at Digital Media for their production work, and thanks, of course, to my sponsors, SeatGeek and MyBookie. Please support them the way they support this podcast. And I'll see you next week. This has been a digital media production. Find your voice.